The Hero's Journey podcast is filled with an abundance of spoilers. If you haven't read this week's book, I recommend you do so, as it will certainly help you follow along. Although, if you're only interested in hearing our take on this story, listen on. Hello, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a podcast in which my two far smarter friends, Alex, and I'm Zach, attempt to convince me, your judge, Jack, and you, the listener, whether a story is a hero's journey. The hero's journey is Joseph Campbell's monomyth. It breaks down the most common recurring themes of our stories into a single template. The journey consists of three overarching parts, the departure, the initiation, and the return. The departure is where our hero is called to action and leaves their ordinary world behind them. The initiation, where our hero undergoes the trials and tribulations of their quest before ultimately achieving their goals. And finally, the return, where after having completed their quest, our hero must return to some semblance of normalcy. This week on A Hero's Journey, we're discussing The Last Wish by Andreas Sarkovsky, which follows Geralt the Witcher through a series of short stories framed by the present day where Geralt is healing from injuries in a nunnery. Uh, it's a wonderful story with many similarities to our own fairy tales where Geralt is fighting monsters with a nice Polish twist. And today, unlike where the Witcher itself begins, we will start with the departure from the ordinary world and the call to adventure. Uh, arguing for, I give you Alex. So like Jack said, this story doesn't start at the beginning. It starts actually towards the end. But we're going to go back through a series of flashbacks um, and one story give a, give a nice departure for Geralt here. So an obvious call to adventure would be Geralt's birth and the law of surprise, where, as Queen Calathane says, Geralt sacrificed himself to protect us from monsters of the night. But I think that Geralt has a more personal call to adventure that's not explicitly stated, where he wants to help humans and not just fight monsters. And I think that will become more clear as we go throughout the story. Uh, as for refusal of the call, I don't really see one. Um, the flashbacks avoid that topic. For Geralt's mentor, we have Vesemir and the other witchers, and they provided him with a bunch of mutations and trials and skills that he uses. Um, explicitly stated are mutations, the trial of the grasses, viruses, and extra special trials that make Geralt stronger than the rest of the witchers. As for crossing the threshold, Geralt, in a story to Iola, talks about how he leaves the Witcher home for the first time. And in, the first thing he does is encounter a group of men and fights a bald rapist. Uh, and that is him leaving the world that he knows, the Witcher home world, and interfering with human life for the first time. And then for Belly of the Whale, we have our first uh, short story here where Geralt encounters Nevelyn, who is an unknown monster, 
And in this, Geralt is not hired by humans to fight a monster. He's of his own will working to uh, free this monster from a curse. Um, Geralt is doing this not because he's being paid, but because he sees it as the right thing to do. So starting with your call to adventure, um, I think you've really focused in the lens of what Campbell is talking about by choosing just this one path that Geralt is following to be this symbol of greater good or to be a force for greater good in the world. And I don't think you're wrong in choosing that, but I think it's somewhat disingenuous to the tale of Geralt as a whole. I think he's a much more fluid character than that. And that when we look at the fact that he's been a forced into the line of a witcher due to the law of surprise from, from young childhood um, and had these things done to him, as opposed to decide to do that, you know, he could have lived his life a fairly normal individual. We don't really know the circumstances that would have existed had he not become a witcher. Uh, We just know that quote unquote destiny and fate um, are what has led him to to become a witcher. And I think it's it's difficult to say that his decision to just do good um, is representative of the tale of his life. Um, and for to get very specific about it is he does that one good deed that you discuss in his crossing the threshold where he's fighting the the bold rapist right after he leaves home and immediately afterwards when he's telling this story to, I think it was Lola. um, He says, yeah. And then I decided after the the girl I was trying to save got sick and passed out and her father ran away with the, with the rapists that, uh, that that's something I wasn't going to do again. And I, and I spent, you know, years just doing my job that shows that it's not, hasn't really been the point of his life is to do good. It might've been kind of this inkling idea at the beginning, but he's, he's, he's a witcher first and foremost. So I think you've accidentally given me what I was looking for before. Um, that sounds like an extended refusal of the call uh, of Geralt to act as a force for good. Um, he just works as an ordinary witcher after he crosses the threshold and experiences this disappointment. But I think he does eventually go back to working as a force for good as evidence in our belly of the whale. He's not killing a monster there. He's not just been hired to fight a monster. He's working to reverse a curse and out of the goodness of his heart, basically. And I I want to stress, especially to the listeners who haven't watched the show, read the books, or played the video game, what we're seeing in this first book in particular are targeted snapshots of uh, Geralt's life in which they highlight his more heroic moments. And I, and I know you that we can't necessarily discuss the moments that we see off screen uh, in which he is living his rather, I wouldn't call it mundane because nothing about his Witcher life is mundane but his more stereotypical witcher life. He does a job, he kills the monster, he gets paid. And I think that these extraordinary instances that may more define his growth don't necessarily come together in what I would normally call a Joseph Campbell's adventure. 
and maybe it's because of their distance between when they happen as far as chronologically. Um, it's just I have a hard time dialing it in. But if we're going to talk specifically about your meeting the mentor, uh, as is my job to refute the points, um, Vesemir and the other witches, they are by definition mentors, but they're also essentially, I don't want to call them his kidnappers, but they essentially forced his parents. Uh, if to you were give going them, to have to call them something, if I was going to have to call them something that wasn't mentor, because I think they do mentor him, but they essentially take a child away from his parents and then uh, and then perform a bunch of magical and and scientific experiments on him until he's turned into a half monster. So, not exactly what I would call quality mentor material. They fit the basis definition in that they taught him things and gave him something he can use later. But I think we, and I really like Vesemir from playing the games. He's a really cool guy, but that doesn't change the fact that they do a bunch of mutations on a bunch of children just so that they can like continue their guild. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that they are weird mentors, uh, but I think they do still fit the bill. Exactly like you said, they provide him gifts. Um, I'm going to make no argument about their motives because I, I don't Morality know enough about the motives. Yeah. yeah. For the crossing the threshold, if you're going to define his path as a force for good in which he's helping people beyond the duties of a normal witcher, I can't argue against that being his crossing the threshold because it's literally the first thing he does uh, when he leaves uh, the, the witcher's stronghold. So but as far as the belly of the whale goes, and I'm going to remind all our listeners what uh, our description of the belly of the whale is. It represents the final separation from the hero's known world and self. By entering this stage, the person shows a willingness to undergo metamorphosis. When first entering the stage, the hero may encounter a minor danger or setback. And so your selection to be Nevelyn and his Beauty and the Beast uh comparative story is I don't ever see a point in the interaction that Geralt has with Nevelyn in which he's really treating Nevelyn as a monster even at the very beginning when Nevelyn charges at him and he pulls his sword if he truly viewed him as a monster there would be some sort of offensive showcase by Geralt I think we see already that either a Geralt has undergone a metamorphosis in the past in which this we do not see the belly of whale off camera and if we're using can't use things off camera then it doesn't count because i think if we look at your stereotypical witcher that beast charges the witcher that witcher pulls out their sword and slays uh nevelin Geralt's already undergone something personally that allows him to be open to the idea that Nevelyn is not a monster. Uh, I think that is partially true, but I also think that Geralt is just investigating because he doesn't think that Nevelyn could have uh, committed the murders that he witnessed earlier. That doesn't mean that Geralt doesn't view Nevelyn as a monster. He might still view him as a monster, but he is looking for the specific monster that he thinks killed those people. He He's hoping that Nevelyn might help him find it, I would say. Mm, I think that's not true. And I, I think that okay. comes with this conversation with Nevelyn in which 
there are many instances in which Neville is is bragging about his monstrous nature and how he his name is used to scare children and how he's just a monster. And Geralt kind of just laughs, straight up laughs it off on a couple occasions and provides more than one counter argument to say, hey, you're not a monster. You wouldn't be able to touch that silver plate. You're not a monster because of this and so on and so forth. So there's a very existing willingness from Geralt to understand right away that just because of his features, Nevelin is not a monster. I agree that there is some detective behind the scenes he keeps asking him about, does somebody live with you? Is somebody else here? Um, that at first the author plays really well, makes it seem like, hey, is there somebody around that if I maybe destroyed you? But it keeps digging into the, some other monster must have done this based on what I've seen. Because he actually does at the end think that Nevelyn did it. He asks him, when you go on these dreams, do you come back with muddy feet? He's like, straight up admitting he thinks that Nevelyn does it, but doesn't remember doing it. And he's still willing to say that Nevelyn is not a monster. And so I don't think this represents any sort of metamorphosis or change um, in Geralt as a witcher. I think it's a challenge for him because yes, the fight he has with the Bruxa is fairly difficult, but I don't see it as any development of Geralt uh, towards this force for greater good. If anything, he already is this force that you're prescribing. I'd say that this is the first story chronologically that we encounter Geralt in. So uh, I think that it is the first time where he's acting more for the greater good and less as a witcher to slay monsters. But I, I understand that he he uh, he does seem to think of Nevelyn as not a monster from the beginning, and I, I don't know how to reconcile that. Okay, well, I think I do. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I think I've got to concede that point to Zach, that especially because we're, although the steps of the hero's journey don't necessarily happen in the same order as we've decided to tackle it, I think we're judging Geralt's growth by how it happens chronologically rather than through the story uh, as we're told it. So I think that Zach is right that at least for the best that we could think of for Belly of the Whale, Geralt has already begun, changed who he is. He's back to trying to make the world a better place. Which is ironically getting him a is not a hero label. Um, overall, for the departure, uh, by narrowing our Alex's narrowing of our focus down to just Geralt's specific char- uh, change of character, we have a call to adventure, a refusal of the call, uh, some very questionable mentorship, but still mentors, and distinctly an attempt at crossing a threshold that may or may not go well. And diving right on into the initiation and our characters' adventures through the road of trials all the way up to their ultimate boon, 
I will be handing you over to Alex. All right, so for the Road of Trials, uh, as we did last week, we're going to try and focus more on the change we see occurring in the character rather than just three things that happen to him. The three trials that I see Geralt having are in Blaviken, when Geralt has to fight uh, Renfri's men, when Geralt encounters the Sylvan and the Elves, and in The Last Wish, when Geralt is arguing with Yennefer. Um, and throughout these, we see that Geralt is interfering more and more with the human world, at, but trying to go down the right or good path, not something that he's been hired to do. Um, uh, only in one of these is Geralt hired to do anything, and that is in the Sylvan, but he doesn't act to kill the monsters or the elves in this case, he he acts to set them up to live a good life and to avoid conflicts with humans. Um, for the meeting with the higher power, I think that Queen Calathane is his higher power. He she shows respect and understanding of the Witcher profession to Geralt. For our temptress, we have Renfri and Stragobor. They're both tempting Geralt to work in the human world, but for people as a hired sword rather than following his own conscience and acting as he thinks is best or good. Um, for Atonement with the Creator, I think a strong argument can be made that Destiny is Geralt's creator, as Destiny is what has made him a Witcher, and he is following Destiny throughout the story. So this Atonement would be the child surprise of Dunny and Pravarta. Uh, so for Apotheosis, we have to focus our vision down a little bit to the Last Wish story. Um, and I think that the realization that Garok comes to is that he is the master of the uh, Jinn and not Dandelion. And this leads into our ultimate boon, where Garok uses his last, last wish to tie his destiny to that of Yennefer. All right. Well, if we start with your road of trials, um, there's a couple points specifically that I want to refute about them. The, I think in Blaviken, when he's interacting with Renfrey, we see his lack of action uh, to make a decision to be kind of a. It's it's initially set out to be not a very heroic thing. It's I don't want to get involved. Don't involve me. And he really only becomes involved, I think, because of the guilt that would rest on his own shoulders had Renfi started to uh, murder townsfolk uh, in order to get the wizard to come out. But she straight up, right when she comes back from the tower, she's like, yeah, I was going to leave, but she just killed all my men. Uh, and he's like, I thought you were going to kill. It. Yeah, but that I had to let everybody think that or else the bluff wouldn't have worked. And so we see him kind of bundling up the whole thing. It could have been a fairly peaceful um, like wrap-up of the scenario had he, he not got overly involved out of like the need for his own conscience. And so we actually see him perhaps working against the greater good here in actuality, even though that wasn't his intention. Um, causing bloodshed, ruining his friendship with the, essentially the eldermen of the town, being banned, holding the title the Butcher of Blaviken for the rest of his life, which then probably impacts his ability to do good in other places. So that's the problem I have with Blaviken specifically. 
as far as the Sylvan goes, I think this is your worst example because of his interaction specifically with the elves. He A, he was hired to interact with the Sylvan, with the devil, by the townspeople. So it does, you know, take a little bit away from the not because he was hired to do so. He gets set out on that specific tale because he was hired to do so. But his interactions with the elves in particular, he's actually fairly combative. There's a couple instances where he's trying to be somewhat sympathetic. He says, hey, you know, there's a big world. You could go live somewhere else. But pretty quickly, it turns into him headbutting one of the captors, uh, taunting them in the elder speech, and pretty much telling them to, you know, to go screw themselves because he realizes that nothing is going to dissuade them from killing him now that they have him. Uh, he's actually a fairly confrontational individual, and the only thing that saves them in this instance is the direct intervention of the of the goddess of um, of of the harvest, who comes in and tells the elves, "Leave him alone, and and be on your way." Uh, there is some slight amount of reconciliation with the elves at the very end before they depart, pretty much saying, "Hey, when we do decide that we're sick of this situation, you got to agree to like kill us." And he's like, yeah, I'll do my best. That's about as much reconciliation as they get. Uh, and it's really just forced onto them by someone who's who's of a much higher power and authority than, uh, than Geralt. Um, and then finally, in The Last Wish, I, agree, I think this is once more a selfish interaction that Geralt is having as opposed to something that deals with the greater good. Uh, at the beginning, it's selfish because he's trying to save his best friend and really his his best friend doesn't have much to do with the overarching idea of a greater good yes it would be sad if 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 he died but really only for Geralt I think there's plenty of people who would probably um probably be happy that Dandelion is Dandelion is a poet and a national treasure and you will not speak Uh, not according to probably a plethora of brothers and husbands across the realm but uh, (laughs) yes but there are many women that would die for him yeah including Geralt apparently and so um, A it starts off on a somewhat you know personal matter Uh, it gets turned into a greater issue by his interactions with Yennefer and her desire to trap the djinn but the problem is there's a very easy way to end the situation and that for the greater good of the town, and that is to use his last wish, let Yennefer fail, and you know, and, and the djinn then is is returns to his world. But he purposefully prolongs the damage that is happening to the towns and the people around him to try to save Yennefer. Again, a very narrow, and that's really only because he's, you know, pretty obviously fallen in love with her already. And so I think the instances you've shown end up having a positive effect. But A, I don't think that's the purpose of Geralt, especially in the first two, and is merely happenstance throughout all three situations that you've chosen. I would say that his intention is to be a good person and act in a way that promotes goodness, but uh, I I will admit that sometimes he doesn't get to the right place. In our description of meeting with the higher power, we specify that the hero gains items uh, that will help them in the future. So I'm curious what you think 
Kelsane gives to Geralt that helps him in the future in this book. And remember that people are not things. <laughs> and even then, he's not <laughs> given anything by, by, by Kelsane that helps him, even if you want to use a person in this book. Yeah, um, I just think that she shows him respect and an understanding of the profession that he hasn't had from anyone up until this point. Uh, so it's not as much a physical gift as a uh, mental gift of, yes, I understand and respect you. I agree that both Renfri and Stregobor are trying to tempt Geralt in the story w w where he becomes the Butcher of Blaviken. I don't remember the short story's particular name. Oh, that's evil. Oh, evil. evil. Thank you. Um, you keep using this term work in the human world, and I don't like it, mainly from the point of view of he is 100% in the human world. He is both human and inhuman. He's dealing with monsters and with humans. Everything he does is in the human world. The only way in which he could not be in the human world is to go into the far reaches beyond the length of civilization and live his life uh, as a hermit. And so them tempting for him to work in the human world as you've worded it is difficult because well, literally every decision he makes is impactful of the human world. They're tempting him to work in the human world for them as a hired sword rather than for what Geralt thinks is good. So they're trying to use him as a witcher and he wants to more be Geralt. Not use him, not use him as a witcher, not hire him to fight monsters, but hire him to kill each other. They're, they're trying they to hire him as a The other one is a monster. And, and they, they use that as their, as their reasoning to get him try to hire him. Yeah, but Geralt definitely doesn't see either of them as monsters. Okay, he views them as, as humans and human problems. Although they might both be trying to tempt Geralt in a very literal sense to work for them, I don't think they're trying to tempt him away from his own personal pursuit. He doesn't, as you say... I mean, he, he literally needs... says that they, you're asking me to choose a lesser evil, but I see evil as evil. Right. But he doesn't try and give in to it them. doesn't it doesn't register him as something he should try. He's so blatantly no. He he like shuts it down immediately. Is okay. I think the point that, that Jack is trying to, okay. to say. Yeah, we've made that argument before. I, I can accept it. Um yeah. Atonement with the Creator I think is difficult. If you want to say that Destiny's Geralt's creator, A because he's you know, the law of surprise you're trying to say that his interaction with Dunny and Parvarda is him being reintroduced to this destiny, even though he's been living through it his whole life. It's destiny interacting with him. He's, he's now getting a child surprise himself. Uh, I know that I like to bring it up when we discuss Atoma with the creator, but it's still one of the points that I find most interesting is that as well as being about what we generally associate the idea of atoning with being initiated in, into by some, whatever holds the highest power in our character's life, that it also has that line about being the point that the story flows to and flows away from. And yeah. Geralt's entanglement with 
who we know, the child of surprise, who is Siri, is definitely what his entire journey is shaped by. The apotheosis is supposed to be this point of realization which a greater understanding is achieved. And I think if you literally just go by, yes, he's a, he's understood something, but I don't see it as this greater sense. If you had come to me and said, it's an understanding that the only way he can break from his destiny is by using a force of magic so extremely raw and powerful to, to alter his own destiny. It's, it's not that. He's, he's using this last wish of the genie to save you know, somebody that he's fallen in love with and kind of wrap it up in a neat bow. He's not really using it to say, hey, I'm going to alter the course of my life forever and move it away from where it was set on originally. And I, I don't think it's, a, a, a conscious decision that he makes, although that is the end result. And B, I don't think his understanding of how the gin works is great enough to truly be a aha moment. Well, I would say that Geralt tying his destiny to that of Yennefer is definitely a change from what it would have been otherwise. And he doesn't have the power to do that without realizing that he is a master of the um, djinn. It, it just would have been of destruction of the town, probably death of Geralt, Yennefer, and everyone else around him. So he has to realize that he's a master of the djinn before he can achieve his ultimate boon. So before we dig into the ultimate boon and whether tying his destiny to Yennefer is him avoiding what might have been his previous assumed destiny. Uh, for the apotheosis, we it is certainly a moment of understanding, but, and well, it leads to what we're about to discuss as the ultimate boon. How do you feel an understanding that the jinn is, he is the master of the jinn, prepares him for better for the battle that is his attempts at fighting fate. Obviously, is that because I, I agree with Zach that it feels more like that apotheosis. Well, it leads to actions that change his fate. That revelation doesn't seem like it's. It wraps up the immediate. It wraps up the immediate danger and the situation that they're in. But he isn't aware of the fact that it's going to influence the greater scope of his life to such a degree. His revelation isn't that he's the master of the jinn and therefore he can wish to change his fate. His revelation is, ah, I can beat this monster. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. Just because I have some future knowledge of the story, I, I see this tying of his destiny to Yennefer as a big moment. You bring up a kind of interesting point but I think that Geralt's destiny from his from being a witcher is to fight monsters and not to work as a force for good. And throughout this, he's continuing to fight and work as a force for good rather than work as a hired sword to kill monsters. I think that tying his destiny to that of Yennefer shows that Geralt can change his destiny and work as a force for good rather than follow the destiny that was laid out for him to be a sellsword and fight monsters. So it doesn't 
it doesn't give him this ability to fight good better, but it does show him that he doesn't have to be what his quote unquote destiny has uh, been. I think ultimately, well, you make several very strong points, Alex, that I have to agree with Zach that due to the very nature of how we've narrowed Geralt's journey for this book, that well, tying his destiny to Yennefer via magic is certainly the ultimate boon for of part of who he is and on and in his extended uh, world, as you, as we've discussed, a massively impactful event. That it's not the ultimate; it's not an ultimate boon towards what we've set out as his goal. is sure to be a confusing return to the ordinary world I give you Alex. For Geralt's refusal of the return we see him fighting the Shriga which is actually the first thing that we see in the book um, so he is without Yennefer he's staying in this world of men and fighting for the greater good that he's been fighting for this whole time and not going back to the ordinary world of the Witcher, where he is just fighting monsters. Uh, I think that the magic flight is his rescue from the crypt after breaking the curse on the Striga. Geralt's rescue from without is his healing by Neneki, the nun Reverend Mother person. Um, his crossing the threshold is going to be offending the Knights of the Rose, leading into his Master of Two Worlds, where he duels Talus. So this shows that he is master of this human world because he's able to defeat the human duelist. But he's also this master of the monster world going into his place as a witcher because he's not acting directly. He defeats him with a purely uh, defensive move. And then his freedom to live is immediately after this duel. Geralt goes off into the world with Dandelion, uh, presumably to work only as a witcher. We're going to delve in here. Uh, the refusal of the return, uh, you're saying is, you know, fighting the trigger without Yen, staying in the world of men and avoiding his destiny. Um, I don't Which like accepting your premise of the narrowing of, you know, the greater good. But... If you do accept that, and that's what the point of view that we're taking the argument from, fighting the Striga is just doing his, like, just doing his job. But saving her. Yeah, instead of killing the Striga, which what other witchers would have done, he he works towards saving her, breaking that curse. He's continuing to work as a force for good, like he has throughout this whole story. The magic flight, yeah, you can have it, mainly because our, what we've seen in a majority of these stories is hero goes unconscious, hero wakes up somewhere. Um, I disagree with your final three points. We're starting with the crossing of the return threshold. Um, if we're looking at Campbell's definition of crossing the return threshold, is retaining the wisdom gained on the quest to integrate that wisdom into human life 
and then maybe figure out how to share the wisdom with the rest of the world. There is nothing in his blatant offensive nature to the Knights of the Rose that showcases any of the sort of greater understanding you're trying to to thrust onto Geralt. It's, hey, I have this friend who has healed me greatly, and I don't like people coming up to her and telling her what to do and threatening her. He is, he is simply protecting one of his own and kind of being admittedly kind of a snarky and cool, but ultimately asshole about it. And so I don't see this as crossing this threshold back into any sort of mundanity. So uh, the wisdom he has gained on his quest is that he can act as a force for good. Uh, and I think that he is trying to act as a force for good by protecting Neneki. He's the one uh, who's endangering Neneki by even being there. Well, he can't help that he was injured and she is the person who can heal him. Right thing would have had to do is, yes, I'm leaving now. And the, that's, the, that's the least amount of upset he can cause to what's going on. Uh, instead, he allows himself to be swayed by Neneki's kind of self-righteousness and, and, and I'll do what I want attitude instead of literally just leaving when he should have and creating a bigger problem that he then has to interact with later. I think that the Master of the Two Worlds, I think it showcases his military prowess. I think it showcases some strong amount of restraint. But the restraint, I think, is forced upon him because of the situation that he has found himself in. It's either fight and win in a clever way or don't fight and get beat, you know, beat up, or fight and w- win in a normal way, maybe just kill the guy, and then just get killed by a bunch of knights who are surrounding you. So I don't think it really showcases this mastery of the monster world that you're trying to put onto the situation. Uh, I, the only thing that I have against that is that there is a dwarf there who <laughs> works really well with Geralt. He, like, just goes along with what's happening. He says Garrod has followed the letter of the law and is good. Yeah, but I think leave. I think the what the dwarf provides to the situation is his status as the prince's captain of the guard, not as a part of his nature of being a dwarf. So I don't think that his dwarfness adds anything to the situation. It's just his status as a high-ranking member of the prince's forces. We didn't finish Freedom to Live. We just I just announced that I had already decided that Geralt was in fact running away from what we again, we're influenced a little bit by it's impossible with the wrap-up of some of these books that are part of extended universes to not have our feelings played with by what we know happens afterwards. Yeah. But in this particular case, based solely on what we receive in the novel, he is actually stopping. This is one last stop off of dicking with some humans before he's attempting to go back to his old ways. And that's going to close us out on the return. Uh, much more split than the other two categories were, uh, with a strong opening half of there being a refusal. And as Zach so aptly put it, our main character passes out at one point. So there's a magical flight and a rescue. This, a lot of the lack of hero's journey points in the final closing of this novel comes from the fact that 
potentially as a collection of sto stories, it feels like this story stops rather than ends. For me, uh, this was a fantastic story to dive into. I'm a huge fan of the world. Uh, and as we've alluded to throughout this podcast, I think all of us have either watched the show, played the games, watched others play the games. Uh, and I was just having fun diving into characters that I already liked and seeing them presented to me in a new way. Uh, as a collection of short stories, I feel that although Geralt potentially across his entire series undergoes a much wider journey, we definitely tried to pigeonhole this set of works into a hero's journey where they're much more a series of vignettes telling us about Geralt's life and him as a character before we dive into his real journey. Yeah, I'll say I'm slightly disappointed that I didn't get one more point uh, to make this fit uh, the hero's journey mold in our scoring system. But I, I love this book anyway. Um, I think it's an excellent work. Just all of the short stories are engaging and they all individually tell a nice story and together it, it is a great introduction to The Witcher. I, for one, I really like Geralt as a character. I, I think the short vignettes we saw into his life play a great impact on the Geralt that comes to be in the greater universe and his life as a whole. But I feel fairly strongly that our narrowing, like Jack said, of it was one of the things that I think we do perhaps too often here is bending the journey to fit the story as opposed to keeping the journey rigid in order to see how it compares and so which is why especially towards the end i was trying to be so vehement in the fact that Geralt doesn't showcase really any personal change or you know self i don't know actualization or even self-control uh in ways that that i'd like to see your typical hero progress but wonderful book and and i really enjoyed especially the uh the fairy tale tie-ins uh, one more thing, guys. Do you think that Geralt is more of a hero than, for example, like Kelsier or Emma, who fit the journey more? I think their I... actions are less heroic. I think Emma did not do a single thing in the entire story that could be defined as heroic, but yet in the lens that we pursued it, fit the descriptions of the delineation of an adventure. I think that Geralt may be, as Zach said, more heroic, but as we've said, he goes on far less of a journey, at least in this novel. You can't use the journey of one character to judge the journey of another. I can't say that... That's exclusively what we're doing here. No, you can't say that the, the ant's decision to bring back this enormous piece of food to the anthill which was extremely grueling is not a hero's journey because the the dragon could do it so much more efficiently is all i'm trying to say those are just our thoughts on Geralt's hero's journey or lack thereof in the last wish reach out to us at uh, a hero's journey pod at gmail or at a hero's journey pod on facebook uh, let us know your thoughts 
are you, if you were already a fan of Geralt, do you think we did him a disservice by only looking at this portion of his journey? Uh, and don't forget to leave us a review on whatever you're using to listen to this podcast. Join us next week as we look at the Nebula and Hugo Award shortlisted novel Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. As always, I've been your host and judge, Jack. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. Yay! Oh, thank you. Look out for our Meeting with the Mentor podcast, where we go in-depth on why your kidnappers don't love you, but may teach you things. I mean, that's, that's fair. Um...